Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. This is the word of God. God and Father, as we come now to reflect on your word, I pray that you might speak truth to us. Your spirit would be active in applying it to our hearts, that you might be with us sinners as we sit under us, that you would be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So what is Christianity about? What is it about? Have you ever thought about that question? I mean, probably not, unless you're kind of weird, honestly, because it's kind of an abstract question. That's normal not to think about that sort of thing, but it's also kind of dangerous, I think, because we just kind of assume that we think we know the answer, and sometimes those assumptions can be wrong. So what is Christianity about? Some of us might answer, well, Christianity, it's like, it's about a set of ideas, a set of kind of abstract beliefs about the world and God and stuff like that. And there's an element of truth there. There are ideas that the Bible teaches and that Christians are called to believe about God and the world. But you can have all of those right ideas and not be a Christian. As James says in his letter to the churches, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So abstract ideas are fine, But they can't be what Christianity is about, because Satan's got all the right abstract ideas about things, and we probably don't want to make him our model of faith. Other people might answer in a different way, and we might say, well, Christianity is about a set of morals, of actions, of things you do and don't do, of what it means to be a good person. And again, there are certain moral teachings that Christianity calls us to, to love our neighbors and to obey God. But you can also do all of those things and not be a Christian. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says that, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So our morality doesn't make us Christians. Rather, all it really does is remind us that we are sinners. So what is Christianity about then? Well, to answer that question... I want to just spend a little time walking through this text we just read from 1 Corinthians 15. If Christianity isn't a set of kind of abstract ideas or moral commands, then what is it? Well, let's start working through the text. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul, um, first he writes, he's writing to this church, and he spends the first 14 chapters kind of addressing all these specific questions they have about a variety of topics. But then in chapter 15, starting in verse 1, he shifts from talking about those specific things to a more general statement. He says in verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So Paul says, I want to remind you about the gospel. 
After all this like miscellaneous stuff we've had to talk about, the gospel is what I want to draw you back to. Christianity is about the gospel for the Apostle Paul. It's about the gospel. Now hold on. That word, (laughs) I know that that's both a churchy word and a word that some of us think we know the meaning of and some of us are confused by. And we'll come back to it in a minute, okay? But the point right up front is that whatever the gospel is, that that's what Christianity is about. If you don't have the gospel, you've got nothing. As Paul goes on to write in verse 2, by this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. By this gospel, he says, you're saved. This is the thing that saves you. So if you don't have this, you don't have nothing. No matter how many ideas and how many good morals and all of that you have. If you don't have this gospel, you're just spitting in the wind. And that's the beginning of the answer, all right? That that what Christianity is about is this thing called the gospel. But like we said, we need to stop and define that word, right? That's a churchy word. And so for some of us, we might hear that word and think we don't really know what that means at all. And the rest of us might think we know what it means, but we might not always be right. So, for example, um, I I ask people sometimes what, what they think the gospel is. And one of the things you notice is that sometimes people confuse the gospel with our response to the gospel. They'll define it as, say, the ABCs of salvation that we teach every year at Vacation Bible School, for those of you who have had kids that go through that. Does anyone know that? It's admit you're a sinner and believe in Jesus and confess that belief in him. They say that's the gospel. And that's not the gospel. Again, not that that's a wrong idea, right? That is a true thing, but that's, that's how we're supposed to respond to what the gospel is. That's like saying that a, a wedding proposal equals planning a marriage, right? That is, not, that is not the thing. That is how you respond to the thing. Paul tells us what the gospel is, starting in verse 3. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Again, he's saying this is what Christianity is about. This is what's of first importance. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's where he starts. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So when Paul starts defining the gospel, he starts talking about Jesus. Not us at all, but about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. It is all too easy for us to make Christianity about other stuff. About hair-splitting theological beliefs or rules that we're supposed to follow or politics or ideas about current events or positive thinking and being upbeat or rituals or relationships or whatever. And some of those are good things and some of those are not good things. But none of them are what Christianity is about. Here's a simple test that I use sometimes when I hear people preach, like on the radio or whatever, um, at churches I'm visiting, whatever. I I, I just sit and listen to a sermon, and I I listen for all the times that they talk about, that they just say Jesus, or talk about Jesus, right? And then I discount all the times where it's just sort of like really talking about me, right? Like, Jesus really wants you to dot, 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 right? Because that's not really about him. That's still about me. But just what do they say about Jesus? And I try to count the number of times. And there's a scary number of, of sermons that I have heard where the count is zero. That Jesus and his work are not mentioned at all. And that is not Christianity. That Jesus is what the gospel is about. He's the thing that's of first importance. But we're still not there, right? Because Paul doesn't just say, this is what is of first importance, Jesus. 
Instead, look at verse 3 again. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. The gospel isn't just about Jesus in the abstract. It's not just once there was this swell guy, Jesus of Nazareth. The gospel is about the work of Jesus. The gospel is about the work of Jesus, what he did. That word gospel we keep using, that's, that's a Greek, it's from a Greek word that means good news, right? It's good news, not good thoughts, not good actions, but good news about what Jesus has done. So this is the gospel then. First, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That this man, Jesus, he was killed, but there was more going on there than just some guy being killed might, you know, look like to a passerby. That, that somehow we, in rebelling against God, chose death. Instead of life, we took the side of our own destruction, went to war with the source of our life, and that in Jesus, in the cross, God comes as a human being to break down that wall, to destroy the power of the evil that we chose, to suffer the penalty for our rebellion, that he entered into death in order to deliver us from death, that he took on our evil, took our place in evil so that we might be drawn to life once more. And so at the cross, Jesus did that, and then he descended into the grave and into guilt and into shame, and he did that, descended into that place so that he could then bear us out. So he died, and then he rose again, and the gates of the grave, right, it's like they close behind him, and he turns around and blows them off their hinges, that the jaws of death seek to close over us and he pries them open and leads out the dead. That the darkness of sin covers Jesus, but he stands up in the middle of that darkness and drives it back by his light. That that's the gospel, the good news. That's what Jesus has done. In the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has actually accomplished these things. That's what Christianity is about. And he did those things not just theoretically. That's the other thing that we can miss. Too often, those things that I just said, they get treated like a life philosophy, right? A life philosophy. Like, I believe that if you really believe something, you can achieve anything. And I believe that Jesus died for my sins. That's my philosophy. But that's not how Paul talks about this at all. He isn't saying that Jesus is a metaphor, the cross and resurrection, an idea about life. He says that they happened. Look at verse 5. Jesus rose from the dead, Paul says, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some had fallen asleep. Paul says, I told you these things not because I think they are the best way to have your best life, I told you these things because they were told to me because hundreds of people watched it happen. This is this really radical claim of Christianity. That Jesus did that work we just mentioned in history. That Jesus did that work in history. The thing about philosophies of life is that you can ultimately just take them or leave them. They're kind of up to you, right? When someone says, I believe that if you really believe something, you can achieve anything, I'm free to say, that sounds good to me, or I'm free to say, no, I just, you know, why don't, why don't you think, why don't you really work on believing you can fly off that cliff, right? It's up to me how I'm going to respond to that philosophy of life. But what makes the Christian religion unique is that it is not that kind of abstract philosophy, 
What Christianity says is that God actually came as a human being in a specific place on a specific day. That there was a baby covered in blood and crying in his mother's arms that was actually God. And you could have seen him and touched him and smelled him. And Christianity says that that God-man 30-odd years later actually died on an actual physical cross. And if you were there, you could have seen the blood leaking from his wrists and ankles. And you could have smelled him then too. And because this man was actually God, that in that dying, death and sin and all of that was actually, historically, on that moment, being undone. That you could look at your watch, if you had been there, and they had had watches, but you could look at your watch... And you could have seen the day and the hour and the minute and the second when sin and the grave were defeated. Christianity says that the proof and completion of that came on another actual day, the Sunday after that Friday. And that you could have walked up to the empty tomb and leaned on the door frame and seen the boulder rolled away. That, That there was a day and an hour and a minute and a second when Jesus rose victorious over death. And death was undone and new creation began. Christianity says that if you had been in that garden, you could have met this Jesus again, and you could have shaken his hand, could have, like the first disciples, touched the actual scars in his hands, and stuck your fingers in his side, and felt the heart beating there under the flesh that had stopped and now had resumed again. The claim of the Christian story is that that happened in history on an actual day, and because of that, everything changed. Let me just stress that for a minute before we talk about what that means for our lives. Because for the last couple of hundred years, there's been this terrible idea in the West that religion belongs to the realm of philosophy and feelings and spiritual notions and heavenly delusions. That it's about the stuff, it's about all that stuff, right? And it's definitely not about something like history. But Jesus stands in fundamental contradiction to that way of thinking. The claim of Christianity is that God entered history, worked salvation within history, and that because of that, history itself is being changed. The poet John Updike, he wasn't a Christian, but he had this friend who was this Lutheran minister, and he got this. He wrote this beautiful Easter poem. Let me just read part of it that I feel like brings this home. He says, Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes. The same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour. We are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. That is the radical claim of Christianity. That that there was a day 
when all this happened. A day when Christ rose from the dead and that changes everything. So what do we do with all of that? Well, first let me just note something before we think about applying it to our lives. That claim about Christianity and history, that raises a lot of questions for some of us because it means that we aren't talking about something imaginary. We're not talking about some nice idea or some inspirational way of living. That Christianity is, in a sense, falsifiable. It, it raises or falls based on these historical claims. And I can't prove them in the way that some of us would like, right? Because they're claims about history, and I can't build you a time machine and take you back and let you watch these events. Although what Scripture is insisting is that if I could build you one, then we could. That doesn't mean there, there aren't good reasons to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. If you, if you wrestle with this and want, we could talk through some of them, right? And we could talk about how the idea that, that in Jesus' world, the idea that the Messiah was going to raise from the dead, that nobody believed that. No Jews, no Greeks, nobody in that world believed in some sort of resurrection. We could talk about the other accounts of the early church's insistence on the resurrection, about the account that we read this morning um, from within years of it happening, about how Paul says to these readers, within 20 years of the resurrection, there are hundreds of people that met the resurrected Jesus, and you can go talk to them, and how crazy it would be for Paul to write this to them if they could just go check and it wasn't true. We could talk about how ridiculous the ideas that people come up to try to avoid the resurrection are, about how ludicrous it is, say, that he, he just passes out on the cross after his heart is impaled by a spear from a Roman centurion who then pronounces him dead, and then he's wrapped in a hundred pounds of suffocating tomb cloths and laid behind a two-ton stone, but that somehow, after not eating and drinking and being crucified and impaled, he gets up two days later and moves the two-ton stone and overpowers dozens of Roman soldiers and convinces his followers that he's alive. How crazy that is, right? We could talk about how crazy it is to think that his followers unless they knew that he'd been raised, how crazy it is that they would go and start this new faith that cost them their lives to a one. How while people might die for a lie, nobody dies for a lie that they know is a lie when simply acknowledging that fact would save their life. We could talk about all of that stuff, and I think that those are persuasive things, but I can't make you believe that, right? That's true. I can't prove it in the way that you would probably like. Well, seriously, if that's something you want to talk about, I'd be happy to sit down and do my best. But even though I can't do that, here's what the historical reality of these claims mean. They mean that you cannot relate to Christianity in a half-hearted way. You have to either take it or leave it. If this stuff isn't true in history, if Christ did not die for sins and rise on the third day, really, physically, then you should not be a Christian. It might startle you, but that's what Paul says in this chapter, if you keep reading. In verse 14, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. In verse 32, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this proclamation about Jesus isn't true, if you don't believe that, then there is no point in play acting. That's actually what the Bible says. Stop pretending. Stop checking the Christian box on your census form. Stop talking about good Christian values and sharing inspirational Bible verses. Stop with the church and the pious talk and all of it. If this isn't true, 
then there's no reason to pretend. This isn't some moral system or some spiritual fairy tale or something. If Christ is not bodily raised in history, then Paul says to stop pretending like he is because it's futile and useless. But if he has been raised, if he has been raised, then that has to change everything for us too. I mean, just imagine that you live in some terrible, repressive country, right? And you are deciding how to live in that country, right? There's some dictatorial regime. Do you submit? Are you complicit with it? Or do you try to rebel and stand against it? In such a setting, right? I mean, you could talk about philosophies and life philosophies, and you might. You might even really believe that tyrants will ultimately fall. You might really believe in democracy and freedom, Or you might not, because all of that is theoretical when you're in that kind of place and there's soldiers standing on the street corners with guns. But imagine instead of that, right, because that's not what Christianity, instead you learn that something happened in history. You receive word that a few days ago the tyrant had been killed and his head had been chopped off and his armies were being defeated and now troops were rolling through the country and toppling his lieutenants and freeing the population. Now how would you respond, right? If you heard that, and if you believed that was true, then you are a fool not to live into it, because it changes everything. It has to. If that sort of claim is true, then the world itself is changing around you. And if you don't change with it, then you're going to be left behind. If Christianity is true, then that changes everything. If God has actually entered into history, if death and sin have had their power broken, if a new kind of life is breaking into the world, if that is true, then you have to throw yourself into it. You have to change too, or you will be left behind. That is the claim of the resurrection. So then how do we receive it? Easter comes to every one of us, I think, as a challenge. If King Jesus has been raised, and if he sits in that resurrected body right now in heaven ruling over all things, and if he will return in that resurrected body, and all the dead will rise and stand before his throne, if that's true, then we can't live like it isn't. It challenges all of us. We have to bend our knee. We have to acknowledge him as Lord. And we all fail in different ways to do that. I don't just mean like that people who aren't Christians fail. I mean that I, as a Christian, too often live as if Jesus is still in his grave. As if the cross and resurrection are not the truth. I often act like sin is going to win and death is still the end of the story. But Easter stands as a reminder to me and to all of us, as far as we fail to live out the resurrection, that we have lost our way. And that we need this great signpost in history to remind us that though the world around us still looks like the tyrant is in control, he has been defeated and the armies of freedom are sweeping through. Easter comes as a challenge, but Easter also comes as a hope. A hope that history is changing and that in the end it will be changed. Without Jesus, all of history is ultimately running in one direction. We don't like to dwell on that fact, but it's just true. It is headed towards the grave. 
I'm headed towards the grave. Everything that I build and, every, you know, and our nation and our world, all of it is ultimately headed towards decay and destruction. Without the resurrection, that is the ultimate direction of all of creation. But in the resurrection, suddenly it's like a stream forms in the middle of that river going the other direction. That history now is running in two directions and ultimately will be shifted towards life. And that means that we aren't stuck in that current of death and decay anymore. There is hope for each of our little histories in that. That I'm not defined by my bad choices or my worst qualities. I'm not defined by my failings. I'm not defined by my mortality. Jesus offers hope that none of those things have the last word over me. That the last word for me is life. And in the resurrection there is hope for all of history. For the world, for this beautiful train wreck of a planet, right? Because the life of the resurrection is now at work in the world. Not as an abstract principle or some fantasy, but that it is actually broken into history and is actually spreading out now through this world and that in the end, it will win. It's what Paul proclaims so beautifully at the end of this chapter. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Christianity is about. That the story of history has changed because of the work of Jesus into that. All that is perishable in this world will be clothed with the imperishable. All that is mortal with immortality. That in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, that has been accomplished and that will surely be fulfilled. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, make this our hope. May we trust in the victory of Jesus, in his cross and resurrection, at which you have truly worked salvation for mankind. Pray these things in his name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me?
The gospel is a proclamation about Jesus, and so this is, we don't usually do this, but if you would join me, I'm going to make the Easter declaration, and after each of the kind of like statements, I'll pause, and if you want to say, it's printed in your bulletin, but Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Friends, though death still haunts us, though hell still gnashes its teeth and the evil one seeks to accuse and our flesh is still perishable and weak, this is the good news we proclaim this morning. Christ has died, and Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. This is the day when Jesus Christ broke the bonds of death and hell and rose victorious from the grave. Christ has died, Christ has risen. Christ will come again. This is the day when all who believe in Jesus Christ are delivered from the night of sin and restored to grace and wholeness of life. Rejoice now, choirs of angels. Rejoice and sing all around the earth. Rejoice and be glad now, O church, and let your holy courts resound with the praises of our Lord. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Amen. Go in that hope. Please join us for fellowship time after this service. If you don't know the person next to you in Jesus Christ, we are all united in spirit and in God's family, so you better get to know each other. Get introduced. Um, And go now with Jesus' blessing. May the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in which both of those things are made manifest be with you as you go into this week. Amen.